Are you guys? Why are you, <coughs> why are you laughing? You're laughing. Oh, okay. All right, so um, I hope we're going to finish the nurse's song today. Now we will. We'll talk about it a little bit more um, and then go to Paradise Lost. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Are you thinking of taking this? Yeah. Okay, good. How um, was your Christmas break? Um, it was way too short. How was yours? It was also really short. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a weary break. Yeah. How's that for transfer? Uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right, good. Um, so, so you're like a month behind because we're always a month behind, so it's okay. Sorry. Because remember how much we didn't do in 18th century? Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna not do as much in this class too. So that's oh, how far okay. behind we are. Oh, okay. But um, but maybe not today. So. Um, do I have a copy of the nurse's song? I think you can find them in here. So look, um, am I at that page? Um, no, you'll have to um, just look in the index. Uh, nurse's song. Um, okay, this is, you know some of the people in this class, but not all. This is Nicole. This is the class. Um, uh, you don't know Ryan? Or maybe you no, do. I but um, I know Max. You know Max. Okay, Megan? No, I don't. Um, why unlikely? Because physics? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, you know Ariel. Uh, do you know Olivia? No. Okay, that's Olivia. And um, you know Tafar. Um, all right, so we were... Um, actually, it might be easier for you to find it in here. Yeah, I don't. It's not in the end. Okay. okay. Um, oh, that's stupid. I thought it was. All right. Um, okay, I'll look on with you. So just nurses' song. Um, so basically, just to get you very, very quickly up to speed, what we're going to be doing after, we're going to talk about Paradise Lost a bit today. And um, then what we'll be doing after that is going to Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Um, the, um, the nurse's song, the songs, there's one in the Song of Innocence and one in the Song of Experience. And um, they're different. And what we got to um, talking yesterday was that the um, innocent um, nurse's song, the nurse in the Song of Innocence seems to be younger than the nurse in the Song of Experience, right? Does everyone agree with that? Um, it's almost as though... Um, She's remembering um, a time that's not so distant from the time um, in her life where she is. Uh, she, she's a bit like a babysitter. Um, and a babysitter, you know, like when you're making money as a junior or senior in high school, um, and so you're not that much older um, by um, lifetime standards, by the length of lifetime standards, you're not that much older than the kids you're babysitting. You may be twice their age. You may be, um, um, or even more, you may be three times their age. You may be um, 16 and they could be five or six. Um, but the number of years between you isn't that great. And you kind of remember um, that time as um, a time in your life which is continuous with you. Um, the, the second nurse 
um, seems to be considerably older. Um, and um, someone who, um, there's a concept that um, I think people don't, don't articulate to themselves enough, but which is a real one, um, which is uh, when in your life you become someone who's been an adult longer than they haven't been an adult. So I don't think any of you guys are there. Um, that is, let's say that you started thinking of yourself as um, an adult at 18 or something like that. You don't think so? Is that too young or too old? Too young. Too young. Oh, yeah. d- am I, I mean, making you feel old? Adult. A legal adult, yes, but a yeah. functional knows how to pay taxes and rent. And oh, no, no, not that adulting thing. Yuck. No, I just mean um, uh, that you are, people tend to feel, for the rest of their lives, um, people tend to feel continuous with their 18-year-old selves. Um, and um, they, they, when you're 18, you kind of have this belief that um, one way of dealing with your mortality is to think that when you're 75, it's going to be a totally different person who's 75 from who you are. Um, there's going to be that old person, that 75-year-old. And um, since it won't be you, um, it's not as terrifying because it's just some 75-year-old. Um, and the transition from who you are at 18 to who you are at 75 is like a transition that um, you don't quite have to face because it'll be so gradual. Um, but it'll be someone else who's 75, so that's okay. Right? Do you guys think that way at all? No. I no? just I just turned 19, and I feel very disconnected from my 18-year-old self. You do? Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you mean... Oh, yeah, you turned 19 in class. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were having class, and you turned 19. That was great. Um, I don't know why people are afraid of death, though. Sorry? I don't know why people are afraid of death. Um, like, I don't know, because, like, for, for me, it's like, it's going to happen. So you might as well. <laughs> yeah. And, like, it's also that I think suffering is what I'm scared of. Yeah. Not dying. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, we can take it broadly, but yeah, there's, there um, life declines, let's say, and um, there's a way that young people have of, of, um, of deferring the time of that decline, um, and the way you defer it, um, one psychological way that you defer it is you just think of um, the time in your life in which it really declines, which is many decades for you guys, I hope, away, um, as um, um, a time in your life where the person who will be experiencing that, it's hard to imagine them as still you. Um, in some sense you, but in some sense not. Just the way it's really hard to imagine your grandparents as, as, as adolescents, even when they tell you all those great stories. Um, of their adolescence, it's like a black and white or a sepia-toned adolescent or um, um, old TV style rather than high def um, and so on. It's just a different world. Um, But I think there was a time in your life um, which is an interesting transition when you've been an adult. You've been, let's say, 36 if we take 18, which which Megan and I think Nicole don't want us to. But... (laughs) When you're 36 or 37, and um, it turns out that you have not been um, a kid longer than you've been a kid, um, and I think that's what the where the experienced nurse is. 
Um, the innocent nurse maybe is not any longer a kid. Um, maybe she is um, on Megan's calculations. Um, but um, certainly um, the, the experienced nurse um, hasn't been a kid for a long time. So when she talks about the days of my youth, she doesn't mean now I'm um, 15 and I remember the paradise of being seven. Um, what she means is now um, the time of hope is gone, the time of a youthful sense that the future has a whole lot in store is gone. Um, so anyhow, this is just a way of, I mean, you don't have to agree with this characterization of the difference between those ages, but it's one way of, um, I hope you guys agree, of characterizing um, the difference in tone between the innocent nurse and the experienced nurse. And so that's kind of where we got to yesterday. Um, since you haven't read these poems, um, why don't, uh, can you understand when you read aloud? I can't. If I read something aloud, I'm not listening to myself. Okay, so why don't you read the two poems? This is the, the experience. Yeah, so first the, yeah, first the innocent one, okay. which also begins when the days of, when the voices of children. Okay. When the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, my heart is at rest within my breast and everything else is still. Then come home, my children, the sun is gone down and the dews of night arise. Come, come lead, off play, and let us away, till the morning appears in the skies. No, no, let us play, for it is yet day, and we cannot go to sleep. Besides in the sky, the little birds fly, and the hills are all covered with sheep. Well, well, go and play, till the light fades away, and then go home to bed. The little ones leaped and shouted and laughed, and all the hills echoed. Echoed. Echoed, yeah, yeah. that sounds a little more satisfying. <laughs> okay, so now read the um, experienced version. When the voices of children are heard on the green, and whisperings are in the dale, the days of my youth rise fresh in my mind, my face turns green and pale. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down, and the dews of night arise. Your spring and your day are wasted in play, and your winter and night in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's 18 to 19, right? Yeah. Um, so what we, where we ended up yesterday was asking um, and, um, who the, let's call it source of these two poems, or sources of these two poems are. And so just quickly to... Um, to summarize, do you guys think you, you had a sense of what I was saying about the difference between author, narrator, narratee, and reader? Is, was that, um, I may have done that too fast or I may have done it too slow. Um, do, you have, do you think you have a basic sense of that? Um, again, I think the best way to understand the narratee, that is the um, person the narrator is talking to, is if you think of science fiction novels um, or science fiction movies or science fiction stories where there's a lot of fake technical language, a lot of made-up technical language um, for a technology that doesn't exist. So science fiction technology is people in the world of the future um, know what's being talked about in the same way that if someone in the 19th century were writing about um, TVs and iPhones and so on, no 19th century reader would know what they were talking about, and nor would the writer, nor would the author know what she was talking about. 
but um, they would um, assume that in the future, the future which is now now, um, people in that future would know what those terms meant, what those words meant. So, so just think of any science fiction novel where there's, where there's fake technology, but it's real in the fictional world. So does that make sense? Um, if, um, um, if in Avatar they go mining unobtainium in, on Pandora, um, we, do you like that word, unobtainium? Yeah, it's pretty great. Would it be hard to get? <laughs> uh, almost impossible. Almost. Maybe actually. But that's what they call it. Uh, that's what it's called in the movie. It's actually a TV trope for science fiction. Um, it's a standard thing that writers use, and they just decided to leave it in the script instead of giving it some fancy name. They just called it unobtainium. When you pitch a movie, you say, well, they're trying to get some unobtainium in um, a, a galaxy far away. Um, or you can talk about warp drive. Does everyone know what warp drive is? What is it? When you go back, like, is it speed Yeah. Yeah, so it's complete BS. It was made up by Gene Roddenberry. There is no such thing as warp speeds. There is no such thing as warp drive. He had a basic sense that um, Einstein says that matter warps space, so you could use the word warp and then um, imagine that by warping space you could be going faster than the speed of light, or I don't know. That's essentially where he was. So we now know that you can go by warp speeds, but it's, it's BS. There's no such thing. Um, and so, but in the future, people know what that means. So what we assume is, if you are reading a science fiction novel, um, the person who is um, taking this fiction as true, which is to say someone in the fictional world, um, if a fictional narrator, not the real author, but a fictional narrator, is telling a story, and the story that she's telling is one in which she is saying that certain things are so-and-so, that there are certain states of affairs, that um, the clocks are striking 13, that um, people are um, playing the mood organ, that Blade Runners are looking for replicants. Um, what you assume is that the narrator, as a character in that world, is telling true things about that world in which the narrator is a character. So if you have the concept, which we all do, that Claudius lies to Hamlet, um, but that the ghost is telling Hamlet the truth. So Claudius is the king, and Hamlet, who has killed his brother, um, and his brother's ghost comes back to tell Hamlet that what Claudius has done. So if you have, if that makes sense, and of course it makes sense, right? Um, Claudius is lying. Hamlet's telling the truth. Um, that is actually only true in the fictional world. It's not true in our world, where the opposite is true. If Claudius says, I did not kill my brother, it's true, he didn't, because he doesn't exist and his brother doesn't exist. So how could he have killed someone who doesn't exist? And if the ghost says, Claudius killed me, um, that's false, because um, Claudius did not kill him. So in a fictional world, it doesn't, work, it doesn't work out as easily as I made it sound, but in a fictional world, what's false in our world, what would be a false statement in our world is a true statement in the fictional world. And what would be a true statement in our world is often a false statement in a fictional world. Um, Sherlock, 
Sherlock Holmes lives at 221B Baker Street. False. There is no 221B Baker Street, and there's no Sherlock Holmes, and therefore, and therefore, he doesn't live there. Um, so. Um, yeah, which is not false in the same way. Yeah, it's not, it's not false at all. Um, yeah, it, it, it's skewed to the right. truth. Um, but if you, because there is no present king of France, but if you say that, um, that Claudius killed Hamlet, then you're saying something which is simply not true. All right, let's just so say true no and Claudius, not true. So it's probably false as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's say true and not true. So what's true in our world is often not true in a fictional world, and what's true in a fictional world is often not true in our world. And um, so that the narrator is not saying untrue things as a narrator. The author is saying untrue things when she writes a work of fiction. But her narrator, whether first or third person, it's obviously much easier to see this in the case of first-person narratives. Um, I was on board ship when I saw this man who was, who was um, wrecked on some ice, and I brought him up onto this ship, and I said, what's going on with you? And he said, my name is Victor Frankenstein, and here's my story. Um, so the narrator who tells us that he met Victor Frankenstein and brought him onto the ship and heard his story is saying true things in the world in which he exists, or pseudo-exists, or um, consists. So in that world, he's saying true things. But in our world, these are not true things. So the narrator says true things. The author who creates the narrator writes words for the narrator that are to be true in the narrator's world, even though they're fictional in our world. And this is not it's a concept that we get intuitively. We all understand it. Um, I'm just spelling it out. And the reason I'm spelling it out, or the reason narrative theory spells it out, is that you then have to see that there's a kind of split between the reader, us, we who know that Dumbledore doesn't exist and Snape doesn't exist, and therefore it is not true that Snape, sorry, you guys know? <laughs> okay, that Snape kills Dumbledore. Um, so, and what we understand is going on in the fictional world, and we therefore kind of project, or maybe we ourselves play act, that could be another word for projecting, a reader who is reading nonfiction who is being told these things by a narrator who believes that narrator because um, the narrator of Harry Potter isn't going to lie to um, the person she's telling the story to, who believes that narrator and believes that narrator as though what she's saying is the truth and it's true in that fictional world. So in the fictional world, just as the author has a kind of double in the fictional world who's the narrator, the reader has a kind of double in the fictional world who's the narratee. And the reason, again, to understand that is the narratee hears what the narrator is saying or reads what the narrator is saying and takes it to be true, but we don't take it to be true and the author doesn't mean it as true. 
in a fictional world, just as whenever anyone tells a story in a fictional world, it may or may not be true in that fictional world, even if it's untrue in our world, the narrator is telling a story that is true in the fictional world to a narratee who understands it to be true in the fictional world. So I won't belabor this anymore? Or so, the, so the point of like these books is for people to actually believe what they're saying? Well, it's... No, it's... The author doesn't believe what she's saying, right? Right. Um, J.K. Rowling knows that she invented Harry Potter on a napkin in a coffee shop. (laughs) (laughs) She's devoted to her characters, but still, we we all fall in love with fictions, which is why our erotic lives are so difficult. Um... Because we see someone and we we make stuff up about them, um, but um, just in a in a very basic sense, the author doesn't believe it's true, but is telling a good story, and the good story is exciting because it's as though there's a parallel world where it is true, yeah. and um, it's as though we are being given a window into a parallel world, and we can call that parallel world a fictional world. So it's as though it's true within that world to someone who understands what the author is saying as though what the author is saying is true. What were you going to say? Well, uh, so I'm just thinking about these terms. You have author, which is a verb, and reader, which is also a verb. Like, we can think of active and creative and forceful reading, an agency of reading. Right. Likewise, an author has agency. Uh, and also a narrator has agency, but the narratee seems to be a passive. I don't think the narrator has agency. I think any more, I I think that's a good point, and um, I think it's arguable. I think um, this is, it's not settled. But I think the idea uh, is that a narrator is someone who um, is omniscient, which no one is in the real world, and therefore what the narrator says is true. Um, So the narrator tells you, by the time you're at the end of a fiction, you know everything that can possibly be known about the fictional world. You have a complete description. Unless they're lying. Well, but if they're... No, if they're... There's unreliable narrators. There are unreliable narrators, um, and then what what an unreliable narrator is, that's the next step, is a kind of second-order narrator. So there is... Um, we will let's just call the first narrator, first order narrator, the one who is presenting the fictional world to you as true. So the author and and it, that narrator is verbatim the same as the author. The only difference is what the author knows is false. The narrator um, presents as true. That's the only difference. They say the same the, the same words. But what the author knows is false, the narrator says is true. This can be done with a joke also. So um, two men are talking about, I don't know, I don't know what, what joke I'm saying, but two men, are, two men are talking and one says, you know, and then the joke begins. Um, so that's not really happening. Um, and I, as the joke teller, am telling the joke as a joke. Here's a joke. But then the person who is setting up the joke with the words, the same words that I'm using as the joke teller, is setting up the joke um, as I'm setting up the joke by having a person say that that there's a certain situation is occurring. Um, And it's only occurring in the joke. It's not occurring in the real world. So the person who says the situation is occurring is treating it as a situation, which we will now think about, 
the per, but me telling the joke, I am inventing someone who says that a situation is occurring. They almost telescope into each other, but not quite. Um, and the only difference, again, is that a fiction has, what we're told in a fiction is true in the fictional world. And um, we know it's fiction. We know that Snape doesn't kill Dumbledore because there's no Snape and no Dumbledore. Um, but we know that um, it's not that J.K. Rowling says that Snape kills Dumbledore. It's that J.K. Rowling writes Snape kills Dumbledore. And um, so she's not actually saying that. That's not her claim. Um, she's not making a claim. That would be something like the present king of France. She's not making a claim when she writes. In the real world, if you say things, you're claiming them. You are, if I, you know, if I say that, um, you know, anything just, just totally innocent, um, not in Blake's sense, uh, but maybe in Blake's sense, but totally um, innocuous, um, like um, someone threw a napkin in the recycle bin, which they really shouldn't have done. Um, I'm still making a claim. I'm saying, I saw this, you can go, if you can find evidence for this, you can check it out, you won't find a contradiction to this. Um, I'm claiming it's true. And if you were to say, I don't believe you, I would understand why you said that. Um, I would think it was rude of you, but I would understand what you meant by not believing me. Um, that um, I claimed that something happened, Someone threw a napkin into the recycle bin, which you really shouldn't do. And if you say, I don't believe you, I don't think that happened, I would get huffy, maybe. Like, why would you doubt me? But I would understand that you were doubting me. But if I'm writing a piece of fiction and I say, um, um, the doorbell rang and the Dursleys opened it, um, and um, there was a kid with a scar on his forehead, um, however it begins. Um, it would be really weird if you said, I don't believe you, because I'm not asking you to believe me <laughs> yeah. when I say that. So if I produce it, or if I'm telling a joke, it would be really weird for you to say, I don't believe you. Um, because There's a great scene in Good Will Hunting, though, where that precise thing happens. Oh, I don't remember what happened. Yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> Anyhow, so what happens? Well, it's the, he's telling the joke, the, do you guys know this? Yeah, the, yeah. Or, it's a, like, so he's like, he's telling a joke in first person, like, as on the airplane, this happened, and uh, then someone from across the bar says, of course, shit, you never <laughs> said that. <laughs> okay, I forgot, I forgot that scene totally. Did you guys see Matt Damon on The Last Saturday Night Live, by the way? I know, he um, he was great, the, the, the pre-Christmas Saturday Night Live. Yeah, he was just great. Um, so you should watch it on Hulu if you can. Um, at any rate. How much uh, did they pay you to say that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that much. I don't believe you. No, I wish they would. But no, he was great. Um, also, the last Saturday Night Live was just fabulous. Um, last Saturday. So when you're done with your reading. With the Miss Maisel star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she didn't actually have that much, she didn't do that much in it, but there were some other really, really wonderful uh, skits. At any rate, um, so you, w you don't say, I don't believe you, to an author. However, um, if you have a, what you do have is uh, a narratee who is supposed to believe the narrator. 
Um, so we're not supposed to believe the author, but the narratee is supposed to believe the narrator. If you have an unreliable narrator, the only way you can know that the narrator is unreliable is, first of all, that the narrator has to contradict themselves. And so unreliable narrators are almost always <coughs> first-person narrators. It's very, very, very rare to have a third-person <coughs> unreliable narrator. Does that mean, do you see why that is? How could you have a third-person story with an unreliable narrator? Because an unreliable narrator is a character. An unreliable narrator is someone who is telling a story, usually to someone they're trying to fool. But the author isn't trying to fool the reader, right? Can you think of a work of fiction where the author is actually not trying to fool the reader halfway through so that you think the butler did it when the butler didn't do it, but I mean that you close the book and... Um, the author has tried to fool you, and um, succeeds if you um, get wrong what happens in the book. You would never know. Fiction, no, it has to be fiction. Non-fiction all the time. Any presidential memoir is the <laughs> author trying to fool the reader. But in fiction, can there be a work of fiction where the author is trying to fool the reader? It seems almost seems like a contradiction in terms. What would, what would the fooling be? How would the author fool the reader? Maybe some kind of historical fiction where it's... So propaganda. Yeah, some kind of, like maybe some obviously a Holocaust-denying piece of historical fiction. Okay, so there, if you go, if you go further out, that would work, that if you write a Holocaust-denying or a piece of propaganda um, work of fiction, um, then the idea is that the author is um, trying to put ideas in the reader's mind and trying to sway the reader's opinion about things. But it's not about the facts of the narrative. Um, you know, there are works of literature um, like those works of science fiction where you can learn a little science. So you can learn from um, Star Trek what the speed of light is, for example, or Spock can explain to Kirk that cesium-90 um, uh, vibrates at a certain number of uh, vibrations per second, and they'll do research to make sure they get that right. Um, right? You guys have had that experience where you're reading historical fiction and you learn something about history even though you're reading fiction. Um, so they're, they're in the fictional world, they're true facts, and then what propaganda will do is slip in false facts among the true, as though the background facts for this fiction, the true background facts for this fiction are, um, include things that are not true. And um, that will often work, and a lot of people learn their history by reading fiction, which is only half, half true in its background. So that's a good example. But there, it's, you could say it's, authors, it's the author is trying to fool readers, plural. So the one-to-one -one experience that you have when you read, um, that is the author is talking to you, um, that is not quite the same thing. But where the author wants you to finish the book and misunderstand what happened in the book and never realize that you were wrong, um, it's really hard to think of examples. 
<clears throat> well, this, I don't think this is like a neat example, but like um, with the brief wondrous life of Oscar. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like there's a section when they're dancing in a club, and the music that they're dancing to is not correct to the time. Uh huh. And I remember that there's a footnote where. By. By him. Like, By him. Yeah, where he says that I know that this is the wrong time mm-hmm. for this music, but I just put it in because I like it. Okay, more nice. Than the actual. Yeah. Music. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was just, like weird. It was like what? Yeah, no, I love when that happens. So there what you have is <coughs> the author is um, intervening as saying something true. That's why it's a footnote. The author is intervening to say that the narrator is um, um, characterizing the world in which the narration is set somewhat wrongly. And the author thinks it's important for you not to believe that you're getting history at that part of the narrative. Or something like that. I mean, it's a nice little moment, I think, um, when he does that. Um, so yeah, there. Uh, when authors footnote their own work, that's always a that's always a cool thing. Anyhow, this was supposed to go fast, but the idea then is um, don't assume that the author is the same person as the narrator. Don't assume that the narrator is talking to you as opposed to a narratee. And then we can start asking. So. Um, where is the narrator coming from? So what I want to suggest is that um, the difference between the innocent nurse's song and the experienced nurse's song is um, that the innocent nurse's song is the kind of nurse um, that the children that she is caring for, um, if they were to write a song for her in her voice this is the song that they would write. So the actual narrator of the innocent nurse's song is not the nurse. It is the children who are imagining the nurse and imagining that um, this is what her song would be like. Does that make sense? And then I think the same is true of the experienced nurse's song. That is that what you have there are children who are um, exploring their sexuality, exploring um, sexual possibilities between them, and they are imagining um, the guilty pleasure of getting away with it even though the nurse is supposed to be chaperoning them and making sure they don't do this. And they're imagining the nurse as being um, envious of what they're doing. That is, there's that hint of guilt within sexuality that can make it all the hotter, which is what happens in Paradise Lost also, although we won't read that part. Um, but again, just to tell you um, what happens in Paradise Lost, as I said yesterday, Adam and Eve have plenty of sex in the garden, and um, it's good, loving, wholesome sex. Um, after they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, um, they have sex again, and it's not good, happy, loving, wholesome sex, but boy, is it hot. And it's hot because they're full of guilt, and the guilt contributes to 
um, the experience. So they actually have what's simultaneously um, the best sex they've ever had and the worst sex they've ever had. Best because um, they can be selfish and each enjoys the other's selfishness. Um, that is, it's, it's um, selfish sex that they have without that selfishness being something which is um, brutal to the other person. It's, it's just that each is taking as much pleasure as he or she can out of the sex because they become selfish because they've fallen from Eden. Um, and because it's selfish, it's really hot for each of them. And they really like it. Um, but they're not grateful to each other. So it's, it's not loving sex, um, but, but selfish sex. And for that reason, it's not deep like the sex they were having before the fall. Um, Milton describes this in, in some detail in Book 10 of Paradise Lost. It's not deep like the sex that they had before the fall. It's not caring. It's not nurturing. It's not all the good adjectives that um, apply to um, certain kinds of loving sex. Um, but it's also a whole lot um, um, more intense just for that reason, because they're totally focused on sex rather than on love. And for that reason, it's more intense for them. Then afterwards, they have a huge fight. Um, and so it's one of those um, sexual relationships that starts out as, um, you know, even revenge sex. Um, hot, um, but um, um, uncaring. And then the natural progression of that is into having a fight when it's over. Um, because it wasn't loving. It wasn't a way of showing your love for the other person. Um, and I think it's the same kind of quality that you get among the adolescents in the nurse's song and the songs of experience, which is that sexuality is an occasion for um, bitterness and rancor and um, um, dislike. Um, and part of the, I won't call it joy, but the pleasure that the young adolescents are having um, is the pleasure of knowing that the nurse is jealous of them, the pleasure of doing this in secret and not being caught and getting away with it, and in a sense cheating. Um, not cheating like adultery, but in the same ballpark as that kind of cheating. That they're, that they're hidden and getting away with it, and the nurse knows but can't do anything about it. Um, so in that sense, I think you could see the second nurse's song as also being a song um, about, um, in, in, in which the um, uh, children are actually the narrators. And what they are narrating is a nurse who is jealous of them. They are imagining the nurse as jealous of them in this way. So I think the nurse is really drops out of the equation. She's not there at all. It's the song that, the, it's the way the children interpret her is the difference between innocence and experience. The innocent children in the Song of Innocence interprets the nurse as kind and kindly and um, just loving hearing the children play. Um, 
children love to think that their play gives joy to others who are no longer children. Um, it's not the major part of the pleasure of children's play, but it's something that when it occurs to them, they like the idea. And in the experienced song, it's the children are into the idea, or now let's call them the adolescents, are into the idea that they are doing this thing they're not supposed to be doing, that they're sneaking off, and that's adding to the fun. And the nurse um, is there representing what they're not supposed to be doing. So it's not that the nurse goes from innocence to experience, it's that the children's um, projection or um, sense of how the nurse is um, thinking about them goes from an innocent sense of an innocent nurse to an experienced sense of an experienced nurse. But in both cases, she's the projection first of the innocent children, then of the experienced children. Yeah. So do the children, um, are the children in the Song of Experience, are they older than the children in the Song of Innocence? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um, so that, um, and in general, that's what you get in the Songs of Innocence versus the Songs of Experience, is that not always, um, but frequently, um, the, the uh, figures in the Songs of Innocence will be younger, more innocent, more naive, um, more trusting of adults than the children in the Songs of Experience. And usually the, the, the difference is in um, when they're adults in both. It, well, so to take another example, you guys didn't bring it, right? Um, let me just give you... Um, now, we'll start talking about it next week. Um, just trying to think of... So, all right, the last of the Songs of Innocence, I've mentioned this before, um, is, um, or almost the last, it depends on how you count. Um, so, maybe it's under D. Some titles and first lines here, it must be under D. Um... So there is a poem in the Songs of Innocence called The Divine Image. Um, and, um, oh no, it's not, I don't know why I thought it was the last. Anyhow, The Divine Image. To mercy, so this is an innocent song. To mercy, pity, peace, and love, all pray in their distress. And to these virtues of delight return their thankfulness. For mercy, pity, peace, and love is God, our Father, dear. And mercy, pity, peace, and love is man, his child, and care. For mercy has a human heart, pity, a human face, and love, the human form divine, and peace, the human dress. Hang on to that phrase, human form divine. Uh, Wait, which one is the human form divine? Love has the human form divine. So the human form is something divine, is what the, that um, surrounding of the noun by two different adjectives. The human form divine. Um, so the human form is the core thing 
that the adjective divine is modifying. So form is, is modified by human, and human form is modified by divine. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, so, so in modern English we might say the divine human form, we wouldn't say the human divine form. Um, that would mean something completely different. Um, so uh, do you see that, Olivia? Um, that um, the human divine form would be, whoa, God has a human form. The divine form turns out to be shaped like a human. The um, divine human form would mean if you look at human beings, you see something really amazing. Um, the phrase actually is an alteration of a phrase from Milton, which we'll see later, which is Milton talks about the human face divine. Um, he's blind and he can no longer see it, can no longer see the human face divine. But here it's the human form divine. And peace, the human dress. Then every man of every clime that prays in his distress prays to the human form divine. Love, mercy, pity, peace. And all must love the human form in heathen, Turk, or Jew where mercy, love, and pity dwell, their God is dwelling too. So, so don't think only Christians are saved, as you might. Um, it's all human beings must be loved, because all human beings are full of mercy, love, and pity, and peace. And where they are, that's what God means. So that's the Song of Innocence. Um, and it's lovely. Um, and, but it might have a certain Sunday school quality about it, about what it's saying, which is love everyone. So here, so that was called um, um, the human abstract. Um, I mean, the divine image. So I'm sorry. No, human abstract is a different one. Um, the divine image. Now in the songs of experience, this is the last of the songs of experience we get another poem called not The Divine Image, but A Divine Image. Um, And that goes, cruelty has a human heart, and jealousy a human face. Terror, the human form divine, and secrecy, the human dress. The human dress is forged iron, the human form a fiery forge, the human face a furnace sealed, the human heart its hungry gorge. That is, the human face uh, gorges upon the human heart. Um, So that's the um, uh, experience version of that. Then the other poem, um, The Human Abstract, uh, let me just see what page that's on. Um, Yeah, that's a few pages earlier, um, which is a different version of the poem I just read. Pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. So pity sounds so great? No, you wouldn't need pity. Pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. And mercy no more could be if all were as happy as we. And mutual fear 
brings peace. So pity comes from the fact that we make people poor, then we take pity on them. And mercy comes from the fact that not everyone is as happy as we are. And where does peace come from? Mutual fear brings peace till the selfish loves increase. Then cruelty knits a snare and spreads his baits with care. He sits down with holy fears and waters the ground with tears. Then humility takes its root underneath his foot. Soon spreads the dismal shade of mystery over his head and the caterpillar and fly feed on the mystery and it bears the fruit of deceit ruddy and sweet to eat and the raven his nest has made in its thickest shade the gods of the earth and sea sought through nature to find this tree and their search was all in vain but their search was all in vain there grows one in the human brain. So, um, a very different look at mercy, pity, and peace. No mention at all of love, um, for obvious reasons, maybe. Um, So, in innocence, we believe that there are these great things, mercy, pity, peace, and love, and then when we get old and cynical, what we think is yeah, there's a reason that there's uh, mercy, pity, and peace. It's because they are countering their opposites. There wouldn't be a concept of peace if war weren't everywhere. You wouldn't need a concept of mercy if people were happy. You would need pity if people were not in pain. Um, so all those things that look so good in the Songs of Innocence become um, markers of their opposites in the same way that innocence itself means there can be something that isn't innocent and which Blake calls experience. Uh, so is it like um, like the opposites in themselves are not good or bad? They're just like forces of experience making um, say more. Say what you like mean. Like, for that. example, in Paradise Lost, we have God as good, and then yeah. we have Satan as evil. Uh huh. But the way that like Milton presents them, there's this sort of ambiguity where it's like evil isn't evil. Like it's yeah. not the evil we think it is. It's yeah. almost like a necessary force in life mm-hmm. because if we didn't have evil then we wouldn't have what we consider good. Okay. So yeah, it's it, like, they are like forces, and they aren't inherently bad or good, they just are. Yeah. Okay, so I think maybe Blake will get there, um, but in a somewhat different way from the way you're describing. Um, but it's certainly the case that what he's suggesting is something like conventional good like mercy, pity, and peace, um, is um, um, something that that is um, meant to counter um, and uh, it's a a palliative. Um, That is, it's not a cure for what's uh, wrong with the world, 
it's something that makes what's wrong with the world a little easier to bear. And as a palliative, it may well be that um, it makes us not go further and find a way around the need for mercy, pity, and peace. Um, if you didn't have these palliatives, you know, one way of describing this that um, Blake and then later Dickens are, um, and Marx too, are um, strongly, I wouldn't say opposed to, but strongly suspicious of, is the idea of a poorhouse, the idea of charity for the poor, the idea that the poor can, um, you know, the people now can go to soup kitchens. So um, it's an idea that people have about why you don't need universal health care, because you can always go to an emergency room. So the idea is that there's just enough kindness, just enough care taken for those who need care taken, um, that you don't need to make things better. Um, you don't need, um, uh, Marx will say, um, a radical redistribution of um, society and of the economic forms of society, because the poor do eventually get taken care of in poor houses and in workhouses. Dickens does the same thing um, in, in um, his novels where the, the rich people are saying, are there no workhouses? Why are these people complaining? So the idea there would be that um, because there's some um, um, palliative, you don't have to worry about it, and it therefore makes the cutthroat ruthlessness of those who are successful in this society um, all the more cutthroat because they don't have to worry that much about what they're doing. After all, they're not killing anyone, they're just making them poor. Um, and no one is going to die of hunger because there will always be a soup kitchen they can go to. And um, so that is um, ways in which things kind of become their opposites. Um, well, because I was sort of thinking in the context of like I mean, current American politics, like as an international person, uh, like, or at least my, perspe my perspective is that, of course, He's a horrible, it's like it's the Pope Catholic, he's a horrible president. But um, that it may not be bad as we think it is because it's almost like the force that is motivating Americans to really reconsider their like their idea of democracy. Yeah. So in that sense, if he never was in the picture as the force of evil, then there would be no growth yeah. for like the American politi yeah. political system. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that um, well, I hope you're right. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> knocking wood. Um, but um, I think that um, it's nevertheless the case that. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, we'll, we're going to see Blake um, describing some of these things, especially in the marriage of heaven and hell. Um, and but it's an old idea that goes that you'll find in Paradise Lost, but that you'll find all the way back to Augustine, um, which is the idea that I think we talked about a little bit in the 18th century class of the happy fall. That is that the fall turns out to be a good thing. Um, 
according to Augustine and possibly according to Milton um, because it leads to um, a higher good through the contrast with the experience of the fall. And we'll see that over and over again, um, some version of that over and over again in romantic poetry. Um, yeah? Another concept we discussed last semester, which I think is kind of like, is kind of the opposite here, is like last semester we discussed the idea that the absence of God is the devil, right? Uh-huh. And here I feel like it's almost like they're they're coexisting and they're coexistent, or maybe not of God and devil, but of all the other opposites. Like they 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 I don't know. They're there as a result of each other. Not they're not present in their absence, but they're present in each other's presence. Yeah. 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 Well, you'll get a lot of that in Blake. Blake especially thought that way, and Blake invents his own mythology. Um, as you'll see, not in the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, but in the later so-called prophetic books, of which we'll do a couple. He's inventing his own mythology, and he has all sorts of very strange mythological beings. Um, Has anyone seen Blade Runner? Um, So if you remember Roy's um, last great aria, um, (coughs) um, when this is before the um, I've seen things uh, before the tears and rain oh, speech, yeah. but before that, he um, says, "Fiery the angels fell." Um, can't do it exactly, but fiery the angels fell um, with something fire blazing, burning with the fires of orc. So I don't know if you remember that at all, um, but that's from Blake. Um, Rucker Hauer is just quoting Blake. He's quoting. Um, Blake's work, America, a prophecy. And Orc is one of the characters that Blake has created. And the fires of Orc that the angels fall in, that's Blake kind of retelling Paradise Lost with Orc as, to some extent, the figure of Satan. Um, and um, that's, and um, it's such a powerful image um, that Roy um, quotes him at the end of Blade Runner. Roy, by the way, is like two years old now. I think he was born in 2017, according to Blade Runner. And he only lives four years, so it's not much, it's not much, not long before this will happen. Um, if that were a true world. Um, but it's not. Right, it takes place in 2019. Is it 2019? Oh, man. So Roy is actually... We're in the year of Blade Runner. Yeah. Huh. Well, then. Um, so we didn't do that badly yet alright, Paradise Lost um, let's look at the beginning of book one and then we'll look at a couple of Satan's great speeches which we started talking about yesterday only in English class Satan's great speeches yes <laughs> um, the hero of Paradise Lost um, which is what um Shelley calls him. Um, Thanks. So, but this is, I think, also apposite to your question, Tafara. Um, So can someone read the invocation of book one? That is, it's the first 25 lines or so, first 26 lines. Um, Ariel, do you want to read it? 
Um, sorry, with a first disobedience. A man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree with mortal taste. Taste. Taste, okay. Oh, you're reading it, yeah. Yes, you're reading sorry. it, the Dartmouth version. Uh, yeah. yeah. Brought death into the world and all our woes, the loss of Eden to one greater man, which around to remain in the blissful sea. Saying heavenly news that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai, did Sinai. Sinai, sorry. That's uh, this is fire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning of the heavens and earth rose out of chaos, rose sea and hill, delight thee more, and Siloam's brook yeah. that flowed fast by oracle of God. I thence invoke thy aid to my advent- adventurous song, that with no male flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer for all temples the upright heart and pure. Instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first wast present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove like sass brooding on the vast abyss, and maddest and pregnant. Uh, when in me is dark, illumine what is low raised and support, that to the highest of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Thank you. So that's the invocation. Then after that, we'll plunge right into the middle of things. Um, but in the invocation, he's um, saying what the story is going to be about. Um, so man's first disobedience. The fruit of that forbidden tree, where fruit does not mean the way it seems to mean the um, fruit that they eat. It's a, it, it seems to mean that, but more deeply it means the consequences of what they've done. So the fruit of that tree and of their eating of the tree is the fall of humanity. And um, the um, all of that is what he's going to sing about. Um, we talked yesterday about trying to do things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And um, then he says why he's doing it. And the reason he's doing it, he says, is that he wants to justify, very famous line, wants to justify the ways of God to man. Um, and um, that line is ambiguous. Because what it could mean is, I want to justify the way God treats men. So the ways of God to men is my topic, and that those ways of God to men, I want to justify. I want to say the way God treats humanity is okay. The other possibility, especially in a poem in which the fallen angels and the loyal angels make up so much of the story, the other possible reading of that line is, um, I want to justify God's ways. But who will determine if I succeeded or not? I want to justify the ways he treated angels. I, wanted to, I want to justify the way he treats Satan. I want to justify the way um, he treats humans. I want to justify the way he treats his son. I want to justify the way he created the universe. All of those things I want to justify. And it is to men that I want to make my argument. So one is justify to anyone who reads this the ways of God to men, and the other is justify to men all the ways of God. Do you see the difference there? 
Okay, so um, if you want to say, I want to justify the ways of um, the U.S. to Nazi Germany, then you might say, um, but what about the way the U.S. treated Guatemala? And I could then answer, I'm not talking about the way the U.S. treated Guatemala, I'm talking about the way the U.S. treated Nazi Germany. That's what I'm saying is just, the way the U.S. treated Nazi Germany. And the other possibility is, I want to justify to Guatemala the ways of the U.S. Because the way the U.S. treated Guatemala is hard to justify. So I want to justify to Guatemala the ways of the U.S., which means not only the way the U.S. treated Guatemala, but also the way it treated Nazi Germany, and also the way it treated Iran, and also the way whatever. And so in one case, it's everything the U.S. did I want to justify to a particular audience. And the other thing is I want to justify to any audience what the U.S. did to a particular country. Okay, do you see the difference? Yeah. Um, so one is justify the ways of God to men, and the way God treats men is all fine, um, as I will now show. And the other is um, show that everything God does is just, and I will show that to men. So there's a difference that makes a difference here, and it goes something like this, that... If you say that all of the ways of God will be justified to men, it means that humans are the ones who get to sit in judgment on God. Not that they can do anything with their judgment, but that what Milton is saying is when you read my poem, when you read my argument, what you will decide is that God is good that God is just. Now that is a radical thing to say because you're not supposed to think maybe that there could be the very concept of justice except that God created that, that concept. So that we have this idea of justice, where does it come from? And what a lot of religious people will say is it comes from God. Yeah. Or even that God is just that anything God does is automatically just. Yeah. So that so that anything God does is automatically just. And therefore, if God says that something is just or decides something is just, it is. If God decides that dismembering babies is a just thing to do, then it is a just thing to do. It's not that um, we could even think, okay, I guess I don't understand this, but it's just. It's just right then and there. You don't have to understand it. All you have to understand when you're trying to understand whether something is just is, is it in conformity with the will of God? If it is in conformity of the, with the will of God, that's what justice means, in conformity with the will of God. If it's not in conformity with the will of God, it isn't. So 
that idea of justice is one where justice is another name for the will of God. And um, we, um, when we say that something is just, or when we say that something is unjust, all we mean by that is it's in conformity with the will of God, or it isn't in conformity with the will of God. That's one idea of justice. Yeah. Um, on the etymology of the word justice, uh-huh. there's a striking similarity with just. It's just. It's just this, yeah. Yeah, like don't question it, it's just. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Wait, is that really? really? No, but it works that way. I mean, just <laughs> meaning just, only, yeah. in a way, excludes everything else. Yeah, so it's, and it also it brings me back to that um, War and Peace passage on the passage of history, and it's like kings or politicians or like yeah. the figureheads of history. Right. So it's, it's just, it's like a river that yeah. flows, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, it's just going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's a good way of remembering it. So, um, one example, well, I, we don't have to give examples, but this, the idea then is if you want to know whether something is just or not, all you have to do is see whether God wants it done or not. That's all you have to do. If God wants it, it's just. If he doesn't want it, it's not just. Following orders is doing justice. Following God's orders is doing justice. And there is nothing beyond that that you need to know, or that there is to know. Following God's orders is doing justice. In a sense, it's like following the rules of a game. If you're playing chess, and someone says, you know, it really stinks that um, a knight can jump over other pieces and no other piece can, I don't think that's really fair. Um, and that would be a bizarre thing to say because those are the rules of the game. So God's game is the universe, and the rules of the game are what he says they are, and if you um, play in conformity with the rules, that's all it means. The names of the, that's the name of the rule, is that you're playing justly. Um, and, um, you know, you can almost think of that in sports, for example, that... Um, if you um, deserve to win because you played according to the rules and you played better, um, or if the other team wins, like the Rams, because um, of a blown call on what should be a penalty or whatever, um, then it's not a question of something outside of football which will determine whether, or chess, which will determine whether it's really fair that a pawn can only move one square at a time, but a bishop can go zooming across the board. How is that fair? Um, It's how the game is played, and of course it's fair. That's the game. And the universe is God's game, and of course every rule is fair in the rules that he invents. So that's one possibility. The other possibility, which is what Milton is pushing really hard, and in a later poem when he saw that this might have been misunderstood, he has a line in a later poem, just are the ways of God and justifiable to men. So there it's clear that he's saying that men can think about the question, 
are the ways God just are the ways of God just or not? And they can think about that question and come to a conclusion. And Milton is sure the conclusion that they'll come to is that the ways of God are just. But the important point is that it's not an incoherent question. If you say, are the rules of football appropriate to football? The answer is, of course they are. They're, they create football. Are the rules of chess really what the rules of chess should be? Yeah, because if you change the rules, it's not chess anymore. It might be a similar game, or it might not, but the rules of chess can only be the rules of chess. But Milton is saying that you're entitled to ask the question, are the rules of God what they should be or not in this universe? And then how would you answer that question? The only way is to have an independent standard of judgment. That is, if it's conceivable to say that God did something unjust, doesn't mean you would say it, but if it isn't an incoherent thing to say, the way it would be incoherent to say um, the way a bishop moves is not the way a bishop should move in chess. That makes no sense. The way a bishop moves and the way it should move are the same thing. It makes no sense to say the way it moves and the way it really should move. That makes no sense at all. But if you say, but it does make sense to say God is um, demanding something that it's unjust of him to demand. Um, the example that Luther gives when he's talking about this, and um, do you guys know about the Exodus, about the ten plagues? Um, anyone not know? Um, so what happens is that they're that every time Pharaoh is about to let Moses go, um, there, Moses calls down a plague upon Egypt. They're terrible. Pharaoh sees that it's a really bad idea not to let Moses and the children of Israel go. And um, so every time um, he does, uh, every time there's a plague, he says, oh, okay, you can go. And then the line in Exodus continues, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he changed his mind. And this happens 10 times, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh keeps saying, go, go, go. And then the narrator of Exodus, Moses presumably, um, says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he changed his mind. And so what Luther, Martin Luther, the founder of modern Protestantism, um, the originator of modern Protestantism, writing about this said, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, why is it Pharaoh's fault? He didn't do it himself. He wanted them to go, and then God reprogrammed his heart. God put in a patch so that he would change his mind. And God does this 10 times. So Pharaoh keeps trying to do the right thing. Please go, get out of here, this is terrible. And then, God hardens his heart, and then he says, no, I have changed my mind. You must stay. I want you to. 
Um, so Luther says, how can that be just on God's part? That Pharaoh is being punished for decisions that God makes him make rather than decisions that are coming out of his own heart without God intervening. Does that make sense? Were any of you ever troubled by that um, when you were kids? I certainly was. Not at all? I mean, no, I think that, like, I went to Hebrew school and they might have given us answers. I just, like, don't remember that very well, which probably makes it impact on Yeah, because we don't like Pharaoh, so screw him, right? <laughs> but the reason we don't like him is God made him dislikable. So Luther says, how is that just? And his answer is essentially a very deep answer, shut up, don't ask. And the way he puts it is God has reasons that are beyond what humans can possibly understand. The fact that God does it means, guarantees that it's just. If God signed off on it, it has to be just. If we don't understand why it's just, it's because we don't have the um, brain power to understand it. But we can count on it being just or God wouldn't have done it because whatever God does is just. So what Milton is saying is something different. He's saying if you think that God is doing something unjust, think you better think it through and decide whether it is unjust or not. So the very first thing that Milton, or now to put a card on the table, the very first thing that Milton's narrator is doing here is saying, I think that I can show that what God does is just. And I think I can show it to my readers who will have to decide for themselves whether what God is doing is just or not. I'm going to make the argument that, he, that what he's doing is just, but I'm going to make the argument fairly, and then you will decide whether or not God is just. And what that means is that we, according to Milton, have an idea of justice that is separate from our idea of God. That whether God existed or not, whether God was good or not, we would have a sense of what was just and what was unjust. Whether God exists or not, it's wrong to murder. Whether God exists or not, it's wrong to steal, let's say. Whether God exists or not, it's wrong to um, slander someone. It's not wrong because God says it's wrong, God says it's wrong because it is wrong. And if God didn't say that it was wrong, it would still be wrong. So what Milton is asking us to do, and what Milton is doing himself, is rely on our own thinking, our own thought, our own judgment in deciding whether what God does is just or not. And then we get introduced to Satan right after that. And what does Satan think about God? Unjust. That's what he thinks. God is unjust. And it's not that Satan simply says, oh, I want what he has. I want to be king of the universe. 
It's that Satan actually, actually does think. He thinks God is unjust because he is thinking. And after thinking, he and the rebel angels think God is unjust. So they have a view of justice, and they think God doesn't live up to it. And that view of justice is a view of freedom, that God, that freedom is the most important thing in the universe, that all beings should be free, better to be free in hell than to serve in heaven. Freedom is the most important thing. God is against freedom, therefore God is wrong. It's not God is against freedom, therefore freedom is wrong, which is what Luther would say. It's that God is against freedom, therefore God is wrong. And that then gives us the idea that you should think it out for yourself as Satan does, or that Satan is thinking it out for himself the way we do. And this begins what will be a deep plunge into your own mind. Humans doing a deep plunge into their own mind to see what they really think if they think most honestly and most deeply. And that's what the romantic poets are going to push really, really, really hard. Okay, so Songs of Innocence and of Experience um, for next week. Yeah, bring in the blank, bring in this. Okay, have a good weekend. It seems like we only started yesterday. Uh-huh. Oh, great. All right.